Man, if you have uh, elementary age kids, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids Time. Likewise, if you've got a middle school age, fifth, sixth, seventh age, somewhere in that window, we've got a uh, class for those kiddos right out front in our foyer there as well. We'd love for them to be a part of, of that. Again, one more time, if you are here for the very first time, we want to tell you how glad that we are that you're here. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. Uh, we are glad that you've given us your Sunday morning and honored that you would uh, come and worship with us and and we're excited to have you. Uh, we're bringing back part of a, a sort of a piece of our history and tradition over the years that we've kind of left out since we had moved into this building. We, we brought it back last month and we're going to be doing it each month as a way of, of being open and connecting with each other, living as an authentic community and really being truthful about kind of going before the Lord in, in prayer. And so each month, the Sunday following communion, uh, we do kind of an open time where we just go before the Lord and we just present some things in the community that we would like to be prayed over. And so uh, we just ask that if you have something in your life you'd like us to pray for as a community, we take a few moments together. You kind of raise your hand and shout it out and I jot them down. And then we just sort of pray over them together. And it's not a time for you to, you know, sort of air the business of all your neighbors. But if you have something going on in your life that you'd like us to pray for or if somebody that you know needs prayer, we just want to say, God, I'm just super grateful that you've done these things in my life. Then we'd love to take a moment and, and pray for those things. Yes, sir. Hey, congratulations. I'm assuming it's 30 years, right? Okay, good. Just checking. 30 years. 30 years. It's fantastic. Congratulations. That's awesome. What else do we have that we can offer before the Lord this morning? Prayer needs, requests, praises, anything of the sort. Fantastic. So Meredith and Shelly Chipman have a son, Marshall, who's in the States now, yeah? Fantastic. What else do we have this morning? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. We're praying over LJ. He has been battling cancer for some, kind, some time now, and he begins treatments again this coming week, right? And so we're going to be praying that uh, it's already been a faithful miracle of the Lord, and so we're going to continue to, to pray God's faithfulness over, over you, LJ. Absolutely. Yes, sir. We've got uh, brand new neighbors moving in across the street soon. Uh, moving van took our old neighbors away yesterday. So in the back of the van. <laughs> no one else is coming in. Okay. Excited to raise the family and the kids with them. New neighbors for the Kenworthies. Opportunity to meet new people and connect with them. And fantastic. Yeah, we will absolutely pray. What else do we have going on that we can lift up this morning? Absolutely. Yeah, Joel and Angie have sold their house and they're moving. It has been a little roller coaster of events the past couple of weeks. And so we are hoping that uh, everything goes and we'll be praying that it just goes smoothly and that God does what God can do. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. All right, time out. Did you say you're going to do a full Iron Man? Okay. I was, I just want to double check. It's pretty amazing. Maddie's got an Iron Man in two weeks. Golly, that's amazing. 
Yeah, we'll be praying for you. That's really cool. Congratulations. Before you even do it, just the thought of doing it, you're, you're a winner. You're a winner. What else do we have this morning that we call? Yes, ma'am. So Gagarino's daughter got a job after quite a dry spell, and we are not just praying for that, but that she will see God as being faithful, showing up in her life, right? Absolutely, absolutely, Gay. Tim? Absolutely. We've been praying over, over the years. We've had a lot of those Campus Crusade kids that have come through the, the, co- <laughs> the system here, and Yes, ma'am. Oh, I see what I see. What we're doing? Okay, way to go, Tim. Keeping it humble under the radar there, doing all the cooking for. Yeah, Julie's like, no, Lord, please, seriously, Lord. So they're gonna be praying for all the crew kids, or cooking for all the crew kids that are on retreat uh, next weekend. That's fantastic. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah, Tim's like, just pray for the kids, and you're like, huh? Hey, Lord, over here, something for the something for the big guy. Right, right. What else can we pray for this morning to lift up? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. How devastating. Absolutely pray for that. What else can we lift up this morning? Let's take these things and we'll go before the Lord. One of the incredible, amazing things about the nature of who God is is that he doesn't have to hear our vocal prayer requests and know our hearts and we can pray in unison and collectively about just sort of the scratching the surface of the things that we've lifted up as a community, but more so even the things that maybe weren't mentioned today that are laying heavy on your heart, that you would be able to pray alongside me as we pray together. Just taking these and the other things before the Lord, trusting that he is in fact God. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for this community. I thank you for the transparency of people, for authenticity, for the fact that this just represents a tiny amount of things that are on our hearts. Lord, the truth is this world is hard. It is difficult. The enemy wants to be at war with us at every moment. Lord, evil is prevalent. This place is dark. It's hard. But you are so gloriously good that you are so magnificently wonderful, that you overcome darkness with light, that you shine joy where only despair should be. And so, Lord, we trust in the middle of all of this that you are God. So we bring these requests to you, not knowing really what your plan is, but just as people asking you to be what only you can be. And so, Lord, hear the cry of our heart this morning and intercede for us where we fail so that we may present to you the things that are pressed on our hearts, those that are spoken here, those that were unspoken here. Lord, we celebrate with 30 years of marriage and this incredible covenant that you have given man and woman and the picture of the gospel and the love of the church that it is, and we thank you for that incredible celebration of truth. Lord, we ask for strength for another 30 years and beyond. Lord, we're grateful that you are a God who hears our prayers as we pray over our children. Lord, we pray for Marshall as he's back stateside, and we thank you for your beautiful hand of faithfulness there. 
We pray for Gay Greeno's daughter and for her job, that she may see your glory, that it may be evidence of who you are. Lord, we pray for all of us that have children, that we would love them and raise them and pray over them, and that they ultimately may just know you. Lord, we pray over LJ as he starts treatment again and how faithful you've been in his life as he's battled cancer. They've been able to see milestones of marriage. They've been able to see milestones with their grandchildren, with their children. And Lord, we pray for victory for him. We pray for this treatment to go well. And we lay him in your hands, Father, and we ask for your perfect healing and hope. Lord, we thank you for the kinworthies and for the joy they bring to this community. And we pray for their neighbors as they move in there, that Daniel and Jenny and their family may be an incredible light just of joy and community and kindness. That you would help us all be people that are committed to our neighbors, opening our lives and our hearts to the communities around us, being missionaries wherever we live, inviting people into our homes and being people that care about other people. Lord, we pray for the Gavins as they make these big transitions and they move homes and the stress that's involved in buying and selling houses. We pray just for you to work out in your perfect timing all those pieces. From buying and selling to moving to the transitions of schools and kids. And Lord, we just ask you to remove stress. God, we are just deeply grateful for the ministry of Campus Crusade over the years. For the years this church has been supporting those crusade missionaries as they took the gospel to the largest mission field on earth, the college campus. And we're thank you for, we thank you for Tim and Julie's not just commitment, but their family's commitment to crew. Burke and Kristen, Megan and Stephen, for the way that they have loved the college kids. We thank you that Tim and Julie have sacrificed their weekend to go and just cook for these kids so that these kids may be able to encounter you. And we just pray for your word to be made known. And we pray for an incredible weekend of worship and discipleship. Lord, we echo Brooke's heart as she prays for this family that has now lost their son in a brutal accident. Lord, death is unexplainable and awful. And there will be a day, I deeply believe it to be true because your word proclaims it where there will be no more death and there will be no more sorrow and you will wipe away every tear from our eye. And so Lord, we pray along with that community and with that family asking for you to usher in peace and hope where there is only joy and where there is only despair and brokenness. To help it not explain the unexplainable, but provide comfort for those who mourn. Or the truth is, these are just a tiny list of the things that are on our hearts. There's men and women in here that are struggling in their marriage, marriages that are on the brink of collapse. Father, there are people in here that are struggling financially and that are afraid. Lord, there are people that are here that are struggling with something they haven't even uttered out loud to anyone before, this thing that has seized their heart or their mind. There are those of us in here that are gathered here, though we feel like we do not belong because of the things that are hidden in our heart. There are those of us that are here this morning that just don't know who they are. And so, Lord, we turn all of these unspoken things on our hearts over to the God that can, that can heal, the God that provides hope, the God that exchanges all of our death for life. Lord, through Jesus, we have an opportunity 
to know you, the one true God. That you have given us access to your holy, majestic self. That not one of us deserves to be in this room, yet even speak your name, yet you love us. And so, Lord, as a community, we come before you and we pray. We pray that we would first and foremost be just washed in your grace. And then we would be faithful, Lord, as we try to follow you. That we would love the world the way that you love us, with this unconditional grace. That we would first be people that have been saved and are joyfully redeemed. And that would pour out of every word and every moment of our lives as we glorify you. Let us be a light in a world that is broken because you have put that light in us through the person of Jesus. And this morning, Lord, as we open your word, reveal to us our own brokenness and just how much you love us in spite of our own death and hypocrisy, that you loved us and that you came for us. Hear our cry this morning, Lord. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. You know, our goal in just being a community that prays together is that we would take seriously the call the Lord has for us to just gather together and open up our hearts to just Him. And uh, we fight constantly as a church to remain authentic. And uh, we do believe that if we gather together in prayer, the intimacy that's involved there is, um, well, it's something that we can stand on together. So it's an important part of who we used to be, especially as we planted when we were real small. And now that we're just unbelievably huge, just, you know, giant, uh, we want to continue to keep that up. So those of you here for the first time, we have been in this incredibly lengthy journey of the Gospel of John. We've been taking it, we're not in any hurry, but we've been taking it a piece at a time as it sort of naturally unflows. We've made it 73 weeks, a year and a half, fully into this thing, and we have come to the last few hourly breaths, if you will, of the life of Jesus. Um, we are, are standing, having been arrested before Pontius Pilate, who perhaps is the most well-known because of his encounter with Jesus and the power that he holds over Jesus' life, if you will, uh, the most prominent sort of worldly figure in all of Scripture. Uh, it can be argued that that is actually Pontius Pilate. So this is the very night that Jesus had, had been betrayed. It's still the same night. We've actually turned the corner into the morning now. But it's the night of the Passover. Jesus has been uh, sharing and breaking bread with his disciples. He's been encouraging them. He went to this long, lengthy discourse. We get in the middle of the night, and we find this, in, this guard, this giant mob of people led by the Roman soldiers and temple police and Jewish officials, led by Judas Iscariot, comes out across the Kidron Valley, and they, they seize Jesus, and they bind him, and they take him back across the valley to the courtyard of Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest, who the Israelites held as a true high priest, because as I mentioned last week, Caiaphas, uh, who we'll be introduced to uh, yesterday and a little bit today, is the high priest that the Romans put in charge, but the, Ro- uh, the Jewish people didn't recognize him. They really recognized Annas as the true high priest. They took him to the high priest Annas. He stood this sort of sham of a trial, as we talked about last week, and Annas passed judgment on Jesus as being guilty, deserving death. They take him over to Caiaphas' house, Annas' son-in-law, because Caiaphas is the only one who has real authority to go before the Romans. And the Romans are the only ones that have authority to put someone to death. Remember, the, the Jewish people are under Roman rule. They have no ability to put anyone to death under the kind of Roman governmental system. They, could, they can govern themselves in terms of religious and political life, but not when it comes to criminal activity and death. And so they have to actually go before the Roman government. And Caiaphas was the only one who had the authority to bring someone like that before the Roman government. So Annas takes him back to Caiaphas. And this morning we're going to see is he's going to leave Caiaphas' house 
house. They're going to take Jesus very early in the morning to the courtyard of Pontius Pilate, who was in town because the festival was happening, Passover was happening, and he needed to make sure that nobody uh, stepped out of bounds or a riot didn't happen. And so they bring him before Caiaphas, and they're going to ask Caiaphas to kill Jesus. We're going to look at this text in two parts. This morning we're going to look at the sort of shorter version, which is uh, Pontius Pilate's encounter with the Jewish leaders and people. And then next week we're going to look at Pontius Pilate's encounter with Jesus himself. And what we're going to see this morning is that in the middle of this incredible picture that is happening historically, we're going to see the hypocrisy of the human heart truly exposed. And not just in the Pharisees and the Jewish officials, but what I believe to be the true hypocrisy of my heart and possibly yours. So let's take a moment, we'll pray, and then we'll just get into this text and see what it says. Lord, I thank you for your word that is timeless, that is true. I thank you, Father, that it is not some antiquated, out-of-context historical document, but it is a living and breathing part of your nature, that you call it your very breath, the Theopunestos, the breath of God. Lord, that you've spoken life into it, and that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That is what you say about your word. And so, Lord, an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. And so we ask that you would teach us from it today, that you would reveal truth from it today to our hearts. Speak to each of us as we need to be spoken to. Convict, empower, encourage, whatever it is that you need to do. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. As we do each week, Just ask the Lord to teach your heart and your soul this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every week. In front of you, behind you, doesn't matter. In your vicinity, just pray for somebody else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. As I say each week, this thing that unfolds on Sunday morning is not really about you and your entertainment. We want to be a people that are committed to seeing God move and work in the lives of the people around us as well. And pray for them. Pray that God would move in them this morning, that he would speak whatever he needs to speak to their hearts. Lord, we turn our time over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. So we've had a lot that's taken place in the past few hours. Um, Jesus has been arrested. He's been bound. He's been led across the Kidron Valley. He's been taken to Annas' courtyard. Peter has denied him three times in that moment. He's been put on trial. Really, he's just been examined by one man that was an illegal trial to begin with, a trial that would actually put Jesus' uh, life, uh, his very life on display, and his very life hangs in the balance. And so that's happening in the late hours, early morning, and then they would hold Jesus until first light. So they'd take Jesus over to Caiaphas's house from Annas's house, and they would hold him till first light because they wanted the crack of dawn to get Jesus before Pontius Pilate to try and see if they can't get Jesus killed while Pontius Pilate is in town, all right? And so all this is happening in a matter of moments, and it's happening in the middle of the night, and we're going to pick up this morning where daybreak has come, and they're going to lead Jesus from Caiaphas's house to meet this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. I'll tell you a bit about more him and his history with the Jewish people and kind of what unfolds. But let's take a look at that. We're in chapter 18. Uh, we're going to look at verses, uh, let's say, 28 through 32 this morning, and then we're going to finish it up next week. 
So then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. And this happened so that the words of Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. So this is the little encounter that John gives us between the Jewish leaders, the officials, the high priest and the chief priests, and all the Pharisees that are probably gathered there to take Jesus over to Pilate. They're going to look at that encounter this morning because it's really, really interesting. And then next week we're going to look at how Pilate actually interacts with Jesus himself. But to really understand what's going on, you have to get the nature of Pilate, Pontius Pilate's encounter and relationship with the Jewish people to begin with. So all we have in Scripture is this little snippets in the Gospel. And the Gospels really hold our understanding of Pontius Pilate to just those moments where Jesus and he and the, and the Jewish people are having these encounters. And here's what we know about Pilate from that, right? We know that they bring Jesus to Pilate. As we're going to see next week, we know that Pilate doesn't find any guilt in Jesus. We're going to see that Pilate has the authority to either free Jesus or not, and he chooses not to. And so Pontius Pilate, through history, is known as the one who gave the order to execute Jesus. And that's where the Gospels sort of leave us with Pontius Pilate. But we actually know a lot about Pontius Pilate and his relationship with the Jews from some extra-biblical sources. Those are, those are historical books that are written that are outside of the scope of Scripture, mainly by two sources, a historian, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus and a Jewish theologian, uh, Philo of Alexandria. They are the ones that sort of capture this picture of Pontius Pilate and his relationship with the Jews. And it's really fascinating, and it's going to give us a little bit of, of depth and understanding. And so I'm going to explain to you a little bit of the history. So for those of you that love history, here's a little snapshot. Those of you that don't, it'll be all right. So Pilate was a Roman official, and, and the entire area, the way the, the emperor uh, of Rome worked, is he would assign governors over all the areas, the provinces that Rome had control over. And Pontius Pilate was assigned to the area of Judea, and Judea was one of those assignments that none of them wanted. It was a real mess, because the, the Jewish people were notoriously hard to govern. Right? They didn't want to be governed. They didn't want the Romans involved in their lives. They didn't want the Romans involved in their affairs. They didn't really want them around at all. And so they were constantly pushing all the authority structure that Rome provided, right? trying to get them out of their lives. And so it was a really hard place to govern. It was not a, a post that anybody wanted to be assigned to, but Pontius Pilate was assigned to it from about 25 or 26 AD until about 26 or 36 or 37 AD, Pontius Pilate was assigned to the area of all of Judea. And his relationship was really contentious with the Jews. From the very first day and, and moments that he took office, things went south. So on his first trip into the holy city of Jerusalem, and Pontius actually lived in Caesarea, which was kind of outside of the city. Those of you remember our study of the book of Acts, remember kind of historically where everything is. 
Well, it was outside of Jerusalem, but he would go up there for the festivals because it was the holy city where the Jews did all their worship. Well, the very first week that Pontius Pilate was in office, Josephus records that he went in there with, a, with an army, a legion of Roman soldiers, and he brought in the Roman standards, which is like these flags that are held high, with that symbols that sort of honor Rome, that mark the Roman army. And, they, and he also brought in this massive banner that had an image of the emperor. And the Jewish people wouldn't have any part of it. They were furious that he would even come in with this stuff. And so they all came from the surrounding countryside. They went into the city, and they all sat in the streets. So Jewish people filled the streets in this first week of office. And so Pontius Pilate comes out and he says, I'm going to kill. I'm literally going to chop off the heads of everybody that doesn't leave. And so you know what the Jewish people did? They laid down and they stretched their necks out. And they dared him to come in and cut off all their heads. Well, it was only his first week in office that would have probably been bad. And so he doesn't. And he's embarrassed. And it doesn't take him long to begin to press the Jewish people again. So a little bit of time goes by, and he brings in all of these decorative shields that have the name of Tiberius the emperor on them. And he hangs them all over the palace walls. And the Jewish people flipped out, especially religious leaders, because they believed that those things were icons that were designed to cause people to worship the emperor. And emperor worship was a huge thing that was happening in all the Roman provinces, because the emperor believed that he was God and should be worshipped as such. And so the Romans were promoting the emperor being worshipped as one of the pantheon of gods. Well, the Jewish people didn't believe in other gods. They believed in one God, and they believed that hanging these shields in the palace, right, was unacceptable. And so they come in the city, and they protest again. And Herod, who was the governor of Galilee, had four sons. And Herod was a, was a Jewish person, but he was loyal to Rome. And all of his sons wrote letters to Pontius Pilate, and they wrote letters to the emperor saying, you've got to stop this. And so the emperor sends word to Pontius Pilate and says, hey, take the shields down. Let them have their religious freedom, right? So Pontius Pilate again is embarrassed. He's embarrassed again. A little bit of time goes by, and Pontius Pilate decides he's going to build an aqueduct through the entire province, which is one of the things that Rome was known for, bringing kind of industry and and sanitation, all these things, if you know your history. Well, he decided to pay for this. He was going to go into the temple and take all the gold artifacts out of the temple. Well, of course, the Jewish people were going to revolt over that. They filled the streets, but this time Pontius Pilate doesn't have any of it. He takes his soldiers into the streets and he clubs them to death. Kills people in the streets with clubs. And they, and they get to this sort of all-time high where they're, they're just sort of the angst and hatred for both sides of this thing is rich. And so just to add insult to injury, Pontius Pilate has all these coins printed, pressed. And they're pressed with the images of pagan gods on them so that the Jewish people had to use them for commerce. They had to touch these coins with pagan gods just to sort of prove a point to them. This is the relationship that existed between Pontius Pilate. It wasn't like the Jews walked in day one and were like, hey, we think we should kill Jesus. They had this sort of hateful thing with each other. But the Jews had to come to Pontius Pilate in order to kill someone because if they didn't, well, there's a couple of reasons that if they didn't, if they didn't, they're going to have a real problem with the Romans. And they didn't want that. And they also didn't want to break the law, as we're going to see today. So they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And the exchange is really interesting. And you can, if you know this history that I just told you, then you're going to see why the exchange is just actually super awesome between both of them. So they bring Jesus out in the early morning hours, right, daybreak, and they stand outside the courtyard. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why that in a minute. And they kind of shout at the guards, hey, we've got this guy that needs to be tried. So Pontius Pilate comes out, right? He say, have Jesus there in the courtyard and all the Jewish leaders and Pharisees and high priests and chief priests are standing outside the courtyard because they're not going into this palace of Pontius Pilate. 
And Pontius Pilate walks out, and what he says to them all is he says, what charges, in verse 29, are you bringing against this man? In other words, why are you here? Why is this guy standing in my courtyard? I'm not even really from here. I'm just coming up for the Passover to make sure you guys don't revolt. So what charges are you bringing? And the, the Jewish people's response, not really the people, it's really the Pharisees and the high priests and the chief priests. And the response is absolutely amazing. They say this, they say, <laughs> they say, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. They don't even answer his question. He says, what charges? And they say, hey, quit asking questions. If he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him. In other words, just do what we say, right? We want you to do something, and we brought this guy before you. It's none of your business what his charges are. Well, Pilate's response is equally as awesome, right? Where he looks at them and he says, well, take him away yourselves and judge him by your own law. In other words, he's going, you people are the worst. Like, I literally can't stand you. You take him away. So you've got this crazy worldly tug of war where Jesus is kind of like, does anybody like want me? Like, you know, I'm here and, and you're saying, do something with me. And Pontius is just asking questions. They're going to ask any questions. And he's going, you people the worst, I'll take him away. So you, if you have this history with what's going on, the air there is just thick. I mean, they hate each other, right? Pontius Pilate has killed their people in the streets. They have basically just neutered his authority, right? And so here they are yelling on one side of the courtyard to each other, and Jesus is standing there bound, right? Well, then the Jewish people have to tip their hats because now that Pontius Pilate has called their bluff and said, no, you have the authority to run your own court system you people run your own court system. I'm literally not messing with you. You've already been enough trouble to me, right? So then they tip their hats com- or their hand completely. And they say this. They say, but we have no right to execute anyone. So the Jews are at a place now where they have to tell Pontius Pilate why they're there. They said, okay, fine. You really want to know? We can't execute him. In other words, they're like, we have to have you which they don't really want to say, but they have to say. And so they're like, we can't kill anybody without you, sir. So help us. It's kind of what they're saying. So then, of course, because Pontius Pilate has them in the place where he wants them and he knows they need him, right? He agrees to hear their case. And you've got this kind of worldly tug of war going on between Pilate and between the Jews. And it's almost if you look as if Jesus sort of hangs in the balance, right? But then John drops this incredible gem in verse 32. And it's just awesome. He says this. John, while all this is going on, says this. He says, this happened so that the, wor- so that the, de- so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. So here's Pilate arguing and basically saying this. And here are the Jews basically saying you got to do this. They're all tug of war over Jesus, over who <clears throat> actually has the authority to put him to death or to put him on trial. And Jesus sort of seems to hang in the middle or in the balance of this worldly authority tug of war. And John goes, hey, just while we're doing all this, this all happened for one singular reason, so that the words that Jesus had spoken about the kind of death he would die would be fulfilled. In other words, what John says is, neither of you are actually in real control. Jesus is actually in total control of the situation. He has absolutely all total authority over everything that is playing out right now, you both lose. 
That's what John's saying. John's saying, Pilate doesn't have the power. The Jewish people don't have the power. Jesus actually predicted this and on his own volition is going to hand his life over and predicted his own way of death because it is according to his perfect divine will. In other words, Pontius Pilate doesn't have the power to put Jesus to death. And the Jews don't have the power to put him before on trial. Jesus alone is the one who has the authority. And John wants to make it clear through our entire gospel journey that Jesus is in charge. That he has this authority. And so what we see in this sort of exchange and worldly tug of war is that neither the Romans, right, nor the Jews are actually in power. Our salvation isn't hanging the balance over who wins this battle over Jesus' life. Jesus is in total and absolute control and that all this is happening by God's divine will. And John goes, just keep that in mind. But what's really incredible about this text, in spite of all of those kind of neat historical little pieces, is that we see something remarkable about the human heart that unfolds. And as I read the text, I wonder if you saw it in there. Because it's kind of buried in the very front, but it's incredibly powerful. So the Jews, right, they take Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Right at the beginning of that text, and this is kind of where we'll get to an end today. It says, the Jews took him from Caiaphas' house to the palace where the Roman governor was. But by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace. So the Jews take Jesus, bound in chains, to the palace of Pontius, the Pilate, Pontius Pilate, where he is sitting for the Passover. And they don't go in, because it's in the middle of Passover. And Passover was a holy festival of seven days of food and drink. It was a feast. And the Jewish leaders, the high priests, the chief priests, and all the officials know that the law says that if they enter the home of a Gentile, they defile themselves. So if they go into the home of a non-Jewish person, they become ceremonially unclean and therefore can no longer participate in the Jewish festival of Passover. And they wanted to eat Passover that night. See, the Passover meal itself on Thursday was the night before, but it was seven nights of feasting. And the Jewish leaders weren't going to miss out on that. They had this entire religious festival in front of them. So instead of risking that, they make sure that they keep the letter of the moral law, that they keep their, their lives on the edge, right, so that they can participate in the religious acts and in the religious worship that was taking place during the week, all the while carrying out one of the most vile acts in all of human history. Now think about that. They're bringing Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, to be slaughtered, all the while keeping their religious hands clean so that they can keep the festival of worship alive. Handing over God's own Son, the very image of God, the deity himself, Jesus, the incarnation of God, to be slaughtered, but all the while saying, I still want to be able to worship. I still want to be able to celebrate religiously. If you look at that, you see this incredible hypocrisy of the Pharisees and of the religious leaders. That they are willing to do anything to do the religious movements that are required, but their hearts could not be farther from the Lord. The hypocrisy of saying, I want the religious benefits of life without having to engage my heart and who God is. And it's really easy for us to stand on this side of history and look at them and be like, oh, what a bunch of hypocrites. Man, you wouldn't even cross your feet into the courtyard on the day you were going to put Christ up to be killed. 
Because we stand on this side of history with all the picture of redemptive history in front of us and Jesus' death and resurrection, all those things, and it's really easy. But if you look carefully, the human heart is really exposed there. And so is mine. All throughout the Old Testament, God talks about how much he hates religion that is hollow and void of the heart. That he hates religious acts that are done for the sake of religious acts. That it's actually detestable to him when we offer our religious worship, even to God, without our hearts truly in it. With faithless, broken hearts that are going through motions that could care less about the God that we worship and more about the act that we are involved in. God constantly talks about how much he hates it and how detestable it is. My life, I don't know about yours, but my life is a real reflection of the hypocrisy that I see laid out in the lives of the Pharisees and chief priests. See, they were interested in all the religious benefits. They were interested in all the religious life, but they were not interested in a God that was going to cause their common life to become uncomfortable. They wanted to be a part of something religious without engaging their hearts in a God that called them to it. And I venture to say that there have been more times than I can count in my life where I have engaged in the activity of religion, Christianity, worship, all those pieces that make up what we do, all the while living with death, death in my heart, believing the lies of the world, steeped in anxiety and fear, worried more about image and ideas of myself than I am about anything that God has to offer. That I come to God with these glorious acts of worship, all the while my heart so disengaged, right? That it looks clean from the outside. I want to participate, but I could not have my heart fu fully pulled back anymore. My worship is hollow. My words are empty. My prayers are faithless. But man, they look good. And I show up because I should show up. And I read because I should read. Or I pray because I'm supposed to. But my life, like the Pharisees and chief priests and high priests, is void. Right? Void of the passion that should be chasing the God that created all of this in the first place. It's a life of hypocrisy. It's a life that proclaims we follow God on one side, but on the other side is petrified of truly putting our feet behind him. It's a, God, it's a life that's, that's filled with a proclamation that I trust and I believe that God has the best for me, yet I will direct my own life until I can no longer do it. It's a life that calls and says, God, I believe in who you are, but lives in a manner that worships idols that are made of the hands of men. It's a, it's a life that has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, that exchanged trust and protection of God for the material of this world, that longs for something other than him. A life that proclaims that I long for knowledge of the Lord, a relationship with him, but longs even more for the safety and comforts and securities and materialism that this world provides. It's the hypocrisy of a heart that says, God, I trust you, but doesn't live an ounce of it. It's easy to stand on this side of history and shout at the mob that brought Jesus to the house of Pontius Pilate that day and say, how could you just want to participate in your religious feasts and yet bring the Son of God to be killed? It's really easy. But I venture to say there's been a many a time where you've walked in these doors, myself included, and worshiped God with all kinds of empty garbage in your life. 
raised a hand and proclaimed that you love him all the while, having things in there that have rooted themselves so deeply that if you were exposed, the hypocrisy would be unimaginable. Because that's the truth of the human heart. And these are the people that Jesus died for. When we say he died for you and me, we're not saying he died for the best picture of who you are. The one that has got it together and figured it all out. It's your best week of your best year of your best life, right? We're talking about Jesus that dies for the hypocrisy of the the chief priests that offer him up to Pontius Pilate all the while worshiping God. But Jesus died for you and me. We walk in these rooms and we raise our hands and we worship the God that we don't trust for that version of you. For the version of you that refuses to die to yourself. For the version of you that talks about God like you know him intimately, but it's been years since you've had any kind of fire or passion in your soul for the Lord. For that version of the hypocrisy of your heart, Jesus died for. And it's the true nature of the human heart. And it's the beauty of grace. That Jesus, in his infinite, incredible, unexplainable love for humanity allowed himself to be led to the house of a Gentile Roman leader, handed over by the very people that he came to save and rescue, to be killed by the very people that he would come to save and rescue. It's why the central part of the gospel is death to self. The entire identity of the gospel is wrapped up in this idea, dying to me and alive in Christ. The only thing that kills hypocrisy is death to self. Hypocrisy isn't killed by changing behavior. Right? Hypocrisy isn't just killed by making sure that I, I, I just do the things I say I'm going to do. No, hypocrisy is killed when we die to the nature of who we are. Because if you kill that singular behavior, there's a thousand others in line waiting to take its place. If our whole goal is just to end one thing so that we won't do that again, so that we can kind of honor God and let those things be equal, there's another thing in line a hundred times over. No, the key to the gospel is death to self, that no longer what I desire, but what you desire. That you are enough for me. Death to myself and alive in Christ puts to death hypocrisy because what it recognizes is not that you'll never do it again, but it recognizes your desperate need for Jesus. See, when we try and outpace hypocrisy by changing behavior, we're still relying on all of our own ability. Death to self says, I can't do any of it. I'm a hypocrite from the core, the very vile part of who I am. I need you. I will always be exposed as a fraud and a failure. And it's why you came and gave me life. So I surrender my life to your grace. And I do try and change behavior, but not for the sake of not being a hypocrite, but because you died and loved me and I get to try and be like you. Death to self is where hypocrisy ends. The Pharisees and the chief priests and the high priests didn't get it. And they wanted to celebrate at the same time that they murdered, well, didn't murder, but handed Jesus over to be killed. I don't know how many times you've walked in here with an empty and hollow heart, something else going on. If it's like me, it's probably too many to count. The amazing thing about God is that this, that's the you that he died for. The hypocrisy of the human heart is trumped by the grace of Jesus. 
So the goal at the end of all this is death to myself so that I can be alive in Christ because you cannot overcome whatever your deep struggle is. You won't pray yourself out of it. You won't read scripture yourself out of it. You won't just cover it up and sweep it under the rug and hope it never shows up again. Eventually, you've got to go before the Lord and just say, strip it from me. I can't do it without you. The hypocritical life that I've got going on is something I cannot conquer. And so, Lord, remove it from me, dying to ourself and becoming alive in Christ. The behavior may not go away completely for the rest of your life, but the more we rely on Jesus, the more joy we find in giving up the things that control us. So today, when all those things wrapped together, let's not shout down the mob that handed Jesus over, but instead identify ourselves as people standing in the middle of it. And realize that that is exactly who Jesus came to give his life for. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that it is timeless. I thank you that it exposes. Lord, every one of us in here, though we not, may not like to admit it, uh, we are the definition of hypocritical at times. Maybe not at all times, but certainly at times. The things that come out of our mouths are not echoed in the way that we live. The things that we proclaim about you are not echoed in the way that we trust. God, the things that we proclaim are often hollow and empty and often like the Pharisees. Lord, we can come into a worship environment with an empty heart. And we, sometimes we care more about what it looks like on the outside than we actually do what you're kind of calling us to on the inside. That we'd rather participate in our religious activities and benefits than truly surrender our own lives over to the God who loves us. That we'd rather live in a broken life than actually address the death to myself that I need to actually have you fix it. And so Lord, we come before you this morning and we just ask you to humble. That if we need to die to ourselves or to some part of our life, that you would help us put that to death so that we may be fully alive in you. That we confess that we all, myself included, are the deepest of hypocrites. And yet you love us anyway. And you came to give us life. And grace begins in that place. So Lord, as we worship you this morning, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would have that worship take on maybe a new meaning in our heart this morning. That if we need to err, confess something that we're holding on to, or God, if we need to let you strip it from our lives, that part of our worship this morning as we close would really be letting go of that. We'd be turning over to you what is rightfully yours, which is our lives and hearts. So God, if we need to confess something this morning, I pray that it would be part of our expression of worship as we hear your word, that we would purge those things of our life, dying to ourself and becoming alive in Christ. So, Lord, hear our worship this morning as we close our time, celebrating the grace by which you have saved us. In Jesus' name.